Blog Talk Radio. Welcome once again to our weekly internet program. I'm your host, Minister Joel Lewis, and you're listening to another great episode of Free on the Inside. We're going to continue the format we've been doing the last few weeks about our black about black history. And I, this morning we're going to show you, we're going to share with you some uh, uh, some truths regarding black history, some untold stories about some black inventors and entrepreneurs. But before we go any further, we would just like to encourage you. To uh, call in, I will call in number at the appropriate time and voice your opinion. That number is 310-982-4126. Again, that number is 310-982-4126. And we have uh, our co-host on the line this morning, Brother Daniels, and he's going to chime in before we start our segment of our black history. Good morning, Brother Daniels. Good morning, Reverend Lewis. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Welcome, welcome once again, bro. I'm excited about the program as always. I'm excited about what God is doing. And you know, I, I, I going to our archives. I found some things a little known black history, man, about some entrepreneurs. And I want to share with our listening audience, man. And you know, those that type of stuff that encouraged me to keep doing what I'm doing. Little do I know that it it, it might have an effect on someone's life. You know, it's a, it affected my life when I hear about the great men and women, man. They went out and they was inventors and designers and entrepreneurs. It allowed me to be able to be creative. You know, that's what our program is about, help change a life. You know, that's what it is, man. Little things like that help change my life, and I pray it help change our listening audience life also by hearing the different people that come on here in the different programs. Hey, man, you know, like uh, most of the time you look at it, uh, if you go back even to slavery days, you look at uh, how many of the, the black people that were uh, working with these uh, simple tasks, and basically when they invented stuff, it got took from them. You know, one of the things they did is because they figured they didn't need it. You know, and so it's a lot of stuff today that, that in the world has got invented. Black didn't get credited with it. No, we didn't get credit with it, man. I think about so much of the stop sign and the red light and things that we hear about in history class. And then I pray that our young people in school today are still studying black history and still uh, understand that they are part of black history. Little do they know, them that sitting up in class, that learning beats, that learning science and chemistry and and and. And nursing them can be uh, a part of this black history. They uh, can be this uh, uh, about these. They can be these entrepreneurs that we're talking about. We never know the great the uh, the great mind that's being developed right now. Amen. So, uh, 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 yeah. do you have anything for us before we go on with our segment of black history? It's a very short uh, audio clip here, but it's very powerful. It's an unknown uh, men and women that's in history. It's going to be very beneficial to our listening audience. Well, uh, one of the uh, people that I found out, his name was uh, Michael C. Harvey. And he was an African-American inventor. And he invented the Latin. You know, little do we know uh, and we take for granted is a light, you know. He invented the, the lantern. You know, back in the you know pioneer days, uh, they didn't have any kind of way of electricity. They didn't have uh, the only source of light was this coal oil light, and most of the time it was real dangerous because 
these lamps got turned over, and they burned the whole houses down sometimes. It, it, it was always fires. And um, some kind of way, Mr. Harvey had a pattern for the the wick that controlled the wick, the way it went up and down. And so basically what you did, you controlled the, the intensity of the light. You see what I'm saying? You're right, I understand. And then he put it in a globe, and he made the intensity of the light, basically it brightened the whole house up. So basically what happened, and even if you look at it, most pioneers and old people back in the old days, they went to bed early because there wasn't nothing to do. Reverend Lewis, you know, they went to bed around about 8 o'clock or soon the sun set, and that was the whole day. And they rose up early in the morning as soon the sun came up. So what this did, it, it added to to uh, the activities of the, of the day by having more light. You know, brother, you said that that's that little unknown black history that Will was just mentioning a while ago. So that's an interesting fact there. And there's a lot of things that we uh, that, that's been uh, that we're not being credited for. There's a lot of things that goes unnoticed that we uh, you know don't think about it. You know, even in the music industry or sports, or, and you know, we always think about black people being very gifted and talented and singing and and playing sports, but scientific inventions and being entrepreneurs. You know, they have a rightful place amongst black history, amongst our people. Hey, uh, Brother Daniel, just hold that thought pattern. We're going to play a little short uh, uh, audio about some black history, or unknown uh, patriarchs in black history. Then we're going to come back. We're going to follow up on that, okay? Kick back and enjoy. Okay. And you'll listen to another great episode of Free on the Inside with Minister Joy Lewis and Brother Richard Daniel, the co-host. here to say that regarding this particular presentation, you'll notice it's being posted prior to the standard Black History Month of February. I'm hoping to encourage people to educate themselves on any and all aspects of history. When a particular subject grabs you, read everything you can about it. And while doing so, read between the lines, considering that most history is written by people who conquer or subjugate other people. When you read all you can from varying perspectives and political biases, including modern writing, a clear picture of either what really happened or what most likely happened very often emerges. As it is now, we have one month officially devoted to black history. I, for one, look forward to the day when this comes to an end, when people everywhere recognize that we are all participants in the one universal history that is eternally in the making, when information and experience are equally given to all. And we begin. First, with the story of a man whose life's work runs along the general theme of my channel, a man who provided us with the foundation for the Western magical tradition, a man who said, at first, clairvoyance, like any movement, nervous or muscular, requires a special effort, but it soon becomes automatic, involuntary, mechanical. Keep your design constantly before you, and your soul and inner senses will make grooves for themselves and continue to move in them 
as cars on rails or wheels in ruts. Let your groove be clairvoyant. Pascal Beverly Randolph understood, and in this quote shares what today everyone's talking about as the secret. Basically, like attracts like. Attune your thoughts sincerely to what you want to manifest in your life, and it will happen through the natural bond between yourself and the universe. Randolph was born in 1825 to a white Virginian aristocrat and his black mistress named Flora. His father soon abandoned them, and Flora cared for him until she died from smallpox when he was just five years old. Those first five years of his life affected his psychological development to such a degree that it is probably very safe to assume that the short time with which she had to be a loving mother to him was enough to embrace him for the entirety of his life. She was of mixed ancestry, being both black and white as well as royalty, that is, a princess from Madagascar. During this earliest time of his youth, Randolph's mother constantly kept his imagination alive and excited with her exotic, worldly, mythological stories. After her death, her half-sister took him in, but offered nothing in the way of parental guidance, and he found himself in need of making his way entirely for himself. After ten years of such ignorant treatment, he left home to become a sailor. For a period of five years, from age 15 through age 20, he sailed the world, living the adventures that were the stuff of his mother's stories, the memories of which accompanied him as his best friend. Randolph was a magician, particularly working with sex magic. And I mean true magic, not the fantasy fluff you see in Harry Potter or Charmed. Also, a medical doctor. A philosopher, poet, novelist, merchant seaman, Rosicrucian, alchemist, clairvoyant, spiritualist, and lifelong world explorer. He was an orator and spokesperson for the abolitionist cause before the Civil War. After the war, he worked to help former slaves become literate. He was a friend of Abraham Lincoln, Napoleon III, Charles McKay, and fellow magicians, occultists, and writers such as Lord Bulwer-Lytton and Eliphas Levy. He's been described as half-scoundrel and half-genius. He was an intense activist for women's rights at a time when taking such a stance was not exactly the most popular one in the Civil War era. Moreover, a man of mixed race doing so. He was already breaking new ground with his many fields of study, not just as a man of mixed race, but because a genius simply does what he or she does without crying over spilled milk. Randolph supplied most of the practical teachings for the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor, and also influenced Theosophy, the Golden Dawn, Franz Barton, and Aleister Crowley. In fact, he was one of the major influences on Aleister Crowley's life's work, and he knew and used all the secrets of hermetic and magical orders and fraternities before Crowley published and popularized many of them. Another literary celebrity he unwittingly inspired was the founder of Theosophy, Madame Helena Petrovna Blavatsky. Randolph introduced concentration techniques for use with magic mirrors. He also experimented with and extolled the benefits of what are drugs such as opium, belladonna, and many others. He even combined 
bottled magnetized water with iron filings to purportedly produce an equilibrizing current in the human body to encourage purification of the nervous system. He manufactured and sold a product called the New Orleans Magnetic Pillow, essentially a love charm containing lodestones and magnetic sand. I suggest that anyone who's laughing off all of this should study the properties of such things and also bear in mind he was just as much a mystic as he was a scientist. Randolph's career was spent motivated by his conviction that the supernatural must be studied scientifically, and this he did with his students. His chief interest, it seems, judging by the development of his writing, teaching, and personal activity, was the exchange of electromagnetic energy between men and women during sex and the particular ways it activates their chakras, which produces what he called the pellucid aroma of divinity. What makes all these details all the more amazing is that Pascal Beverly Randolph is an entirely self-educated man. He died in Toledo, Ohio in 1874 at the young age of 49 by a gunshot to his head under mysterious circumstances still disputed today. The local newspaper at the time indicated it was suicide, although much of his writing reveals his intense aversion to the very idea of suicide. The point is heavily argued that he was murdered in a jealous fit by a contemporary Rosicrucian. His literary legacy left to us today is truly an epic one. The man's personal motto was, try. We leave the story of the groundbreaking genius with his own words from his most famous work, Euless, The History of Love. A vast amount of physiological chaff is current in the world, originating in the pulpy brains of certain people with MD after their names. Folks who eke out a good living by putting medicines of which they know little into bodies whereof they know less. A still larger amount of chaff labeled philosophy is afloat, generated for the most part in the angular heads of people whom a chronic prostatitis or ovarian fever has so deranged that they really imagine themselves philosophers, being only shams, who propose to revolutionize the world, especially the domain of marriage land, by inculcating pudacious sophistries better calculated to kill than to cure the victims on either side. One thing is certain, light is needed, and this work is meant to afford exactly what is required. Reaching outside of American history, we go now to Queen Shinga Mubande, a ruthless and powerful 17th century African ruler of the Ndongo and Matamba kingdoms, modern-day Angola. Shinga fearlessly and cleverly fought for the freedom and stature of her kingdoms against the Portuguese, who were colonizing the area at the time. Around the turn of the 17th century, the independent kingdoms and states of the Central African coast were threatened by Portuguese attempts to colonize Luanda. Luanda, today the capital of Angola, was founded in 1576. 
Portugal sought to colonize the region in order to control the trade in African slaves and attacked many of their old trading partners to further this goal. Unlike many other rulers at the time, Jinga was able to adapt to these changing circumstances and fluctuations in power around her. By her own determination and refusal to give in to the Portuguese without a fight, she transformed her kingdom into a formidable commercial state on equal footing with the Portuguese colonies. In 1617, the new governor of Luanda began an aggressive campaign against the kingdom of Ndongo. His troops invaded the capital and forced King Ngola Mabandi, Jinga's brother, to flee from the area. Thousands of Ndongo people were taken prisoner. The king sent his sister Jinga Mabandi to negotiate a peace treaty in 1621, which she did successfully. But Portugal did not honor the terms of the treaty, and King Ngola Mabandi committed suicide, leaving the kingdom to his sister Jinga. As the new sovereign of Ndongo, Jinga re-entered negotiations with the Portuguese. At the time, Ndongo was under attack from both the Portuguese and neighboring African aggressors. Jinga realized that in order to achieve peace and for her kingdom to remain viable, she needed to become an intermediary. She allied Ndongo with Portugal and was baptized as Ana de Souza, Jinga Mubande, with the Portuguese colonial governor serving as her godfather. By doing this, she acquired a partner in her fight against her African enemies and ending Portuguese slave raiding in the kingdom. The new alliance didn't last very long, however. Portugal betrayed Ndongo in 1626, and Jinga was forced to flee when war broke out. Jinga took over as ruler of the nearby kingdom of Matamba, capturing Queen Mwango Matamba and routing her army. Jinga then made Matamba her capital, joining it to the kingdom of Ndongo. To build up her kingdom's martial power, Jinga offered sanctuary to runaway slaves and Portuguese-trained African soldiers. She stirred up rebellion among the people still left in Ndongo, now ruled by the Portuguese. She also reached out to the Dutch and invited them to join troops with her. She told the Dutch she would be happy to ally with them because of their justice and politeness, whereas the Portuguese were proud and haughty. Even their combined forces were not enough to drive the Portuguese out, however. And after retreating to Matamba again, Jinga started to focus on developing Matamba as a trading power and the gateway to the Central African interior. By the time of Jinga's death in 1661, at the age of 81, Matamba was on equal footing with the Portuguese colony. The Portuguese came to respect Queen Jinga for her shrewdness and intransigence. With Jinga's rule, Matamba became a powerful kingdom that long resisted Portuguese colonization attempts and was only integrated into Angola in the late 19th century. I am astounded. I cannot account for it. No one can. No one understands it. A St. Louis man uttered these words after watching Blind Tom Wiggins perform in concert in 1866. His mystification was by no means isolated. Few other performers on the 19th century stage aroused as much curiosity as Blind Tom Wiggins. Born a slave in Georgia in 1848, 
By the time he died in Hoboken in 1908, he was an international celebrity, and his name was a byword for inexplicable genius. From an early age, it was clear that Blind Tom possessed extraordinary musical gifts. He could imitate, either vocally or musically, any sound he heard. This, coupled with an encyclopedic memory and all-encompassing passion for music, meant that by the age of 16, he hovered somewhere between a respected concert pianist and glorified sideshow freak. For the following 40 years, he toured the length and breadth of North America, soaking up the sounds of the Civil War and Gilded Age, then baffling audiences with his astonishing gifts. During the tumultuous election campaign of 1860, for instance, he was taken to a political rally in support of Democratic presidential candidate Senator Stephen Douglas of Illinois. Tom heard his speech, and years after, he would deliver this oration, capturing not only the senator's distinctive boom and mannerisms, but the crowd's heckles and cheers. Somehow he could recall the sensory snapshot of that moment with sparkling precision. One of his music teachers described how Tom, now a man in his 30s, learned Beethoven's third concerto to perfection in the space of an afternoon. He then stunned her by capping off the lesson by turning his back to the piano and playing the bass with his right hand and the treble with his left. Somehow Tom could separate the treble from the bass as if they were detached self-contained streams that were independent of one another. Tom's gravity-defying acrobatics were also cause for much bewildered comment. He would routinely stand on one foot, his body bent forward, and his back leg raised to form a T. Then he would leap. It makes one giddy to see him make these circuits, noted one man. He comes six inches of the wall but never hits it. Eccentric, ebullient, and hugely entertaining, 19th century audiences did not know what to make of Tom, but one thing was certain. The American stage had never seen anyone like him. Yet today, this remarkable pianist is virtually forgotten. His story comes as a surprise to many who consider themselves well-versed in African-American history. After emancipation, he remained loyal to his master electing to remain with him. Even at the height of his career, black newspaper editors kept him at arm's length, thinking him a buffoon who perpetuated negative stereotypes about the black race. Most damning of all, his most famous composition, The Battle of Manassas, tells the story of the great Confederate victory at Bull Run in April 1861. With a track record like this, little wonder some condemned Blind Tom to the ranks of Uncle Tom. But was Blind Tom really a Confederate stooge or like the St. Louis man? Was there something about him that American society did not understand? Drawing from the wealth of scientific research of the last 50 years, it is highly likely that Blind Tom Wiggins was a savant, most likely an autistic one. His brain was wired in a profoundly different way than most people. Thanks to the insights offered by high-profile savants like artist Stephen Wiltshire, poet Tito Mukopadje, scientist Temple Grandin, and brain man Daniel Tammet, we can now envisage what it is like to experience the world in rich sensory detail, unfiltered by cultural constructs like politics and social conventions. 
we can start to imagine experiencing numbers as colors, memory as photographs, music as ecstasy, and information in disconnected fragments. When Blind Tom was alive in the late 19th century, his extraordinary powers and bizarre behavior were viewed exclusively through the prism of race or the supernatural. Spiritualists thought him a medium channeling the music of the great masters, while social Darwinists, obsessed with race hierarchies, insisted that his compulsive urge to move and natural musicality, indeed everything about him, were intrinsic expression of his Africanness. Both views ultimately denied him his humanity, and this is what I most wanted to restore when I set upon writing The Ballad of Blind Tom. I wanted people to understand why he could perfectly replicate Senator Douglas's speech, yet not comprehend the meaning of the words he was uttering, explain why he, a slave, was no indifferent in his own bondage and emancipation, reveal the depth of his passion for music, glimpse the bliss he felt while playing, and hear the Battle of Manassas not as a piece of political propaganda, but a journey into the maelstrom of battle. Blind Tom existed in two worlds. The brutally racist world he lived in had little bearing on the symphony inside his head. It was a situation ripe for manipulation. Tom's loyalty could be secured with little more than a quality piano and morsels of food. Guileless, gullible, and prone to anxiety, he accepted without question the lies his extravagantly wealthy masters and manager were feeding him. That other people were strangers who were out to do him harm. That if he did not relentlessly tour, he would never hear the buzz of an adoring public again. The fact he was routinely called an idiot was skillfully masked from him. Sadly, as time went on, he would experience this also from his ex-wife. And at times mm. managed to successfully demote him from being central to his own financial matters. Yet when it came to music, Tom was uncompromising. The world he perceived was alive with vibration, which he gave voice to with unflagging zeal. Mark Twain witnessed this by chance on a train. For three unbroken hours, he watched Tom howl along to the hiss, clack, and whistle of a locomotive. What a wild state he was in blowing off gauge cocks, ringing his bell, thundering over bridges with a row and a racket like everything going to pieces, whooping through tunnels, running over cows. Heavens, I thought, will this devil never run his viewless express off the track and give us a rest? A Washington Dayan felt the same wistful admiration when she saw Tom dance through a rose garden one full moon summer's night. He then tumbled back to the piano to play something that the stars told him. Opening with a prelude of exquisite chords, he suddenly burst into such brilliant, such wildly gay, at one moment and at the next such heartbreaking melodies as never heard below the stars. These are the abiding images of Tom, not of a man who was manipulated and scorned, but an engaged and passionate soul who had a deep and joyful empathy with the sensory world. In relaying it to the world, he reminded a generation of Americans of the complexity of the human condition. The following is my favorite anecdote about Tom, which I feel summarizes both his talents and personal charms. It's from a letter written in 1862 by a soldier in North Carolina. 
One of his most remarkable feats was the performance of three pieces of music at once. He played Fisher's Hornpipe with one hand and Yankee Doodle with the other and sang Dixie all at once. He also played a piece with his back to the piano and his hands inverted. At concerts, skeptics attempted to confirm if Tom's performance replications were mere trickery. Their challenge took the form of having Tom hear and repeat two new, uncirculated compositions. Tom did so perfectly. The audience challenge eventually became a regular feature of his concerts. I encourage everyone to visit Amazon.com who would like to hear samplings of his music where you can find relatively recent recordings. Knowing a bit about the man's life enriches the appreciation of his songs, most of which were composed using the piano to mimic his purely audio perceptions of the language of nature. fields of the south. From there I was promoted to the wash tub. From there I was promoted to the cook kitchen. And from there I promoted myself into the business of manufacturing hair goods and preparations. I have built my own factory on my own ground. Madam C.J. Walker was born Sarah Breedlove in 1867, the first child in her family born into freedom after the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation. Her parents and five older siblings were slaves on a plantation in Louisiana. By the time of her death in 1919, Madam Walker was the wealthiest black woman in America and the first self-made female American millionaire. Sarah's parents died when she was only seven years old, and she moved in with her sister and brother-in-law and soon began working to help support their family. She married when she was 14 to escape her brother-in-law's abuse. Her husband died when Sarah was 20, leaving her to raise their two-year-old daughter, Aaliyah, by herself. Sarah began experiencing hair loss at a young age. Hair loss was a very common problem at the time. People found it difficult to bathe and wash their hair as often as we do today because most lacked access to things like indoor plumbing, central heating, electricity. Sarah began experimenting with different products and home remedies, eventually creating her own shampoos and hair treatments. She named her company after her husband at the time, Charles Joseph Walker, and began selling products such as Madam Walker's Wonderful Hair Grower, and Madam Walker's Vegetable Shampoo. Designed specifically for black women, her hair products were completely unique at the time. She began selling her products door-to-door -door and teaching the women she met all about hair and scalp treatments. Her business was so successful that she was soon selling her products across the United States. Sarah's daughter ran a mail-order business from Denver while Madam Walker traveled the states, finally settling in Indianapolis, where she opened her own factory. After establishing her headquarters there, she expanded her company internationally to Jamaica, Cuba, Costa Rica, Panama, and Haiti. Her company employed thousands of people, including many African-American women, and was the largest African-American-owned business in the nation. 
Not only did Madam Walker create incredibly successful business against all odds, she also used her wealth to oppose racism and support institutions to assist African Americans. She said that she wanted to be a millionaire not for herself, but for the good she could do with it. Besides lecturing on these issues at various conventions, Sarah also made the largest contribution to save the house of Frederick Douglass, donated money to the NAACP, the YMCA, and to black schools, organizations, individuals, orphanages, and retirement homes, spent $10,000 every year for the education of young black men and women, encouraged political activism in her employees, joined the leaders of NAACP in their efforts to support legislation to make lynching a federal crime, even going herself to the White House to petition in favor of anti-lynching legislation. Today, there are two National Historic Landmarks associated with Madam Walker. Her New York estate, called Villa Luaro, in the Madam Walker Theater Center, built in Indianapolis in 1928, which is now a cultural arts center. She also appears on a commemorative United States Postal Service stamp as part of its Black Heritage series. Much of what we know today about Madam Walker is due to the efforts of her great-great-granddaughter, author, journalist, and public speaker who runs the official Madam C.J. Walker website and is her official biographer. square miles. 
The deputies from Fort Smith rode west to Fort Reno, Fort Sill, and Anadarko, a round trip of more than 800 miles. He worked for 32 years as a deputy marshal in the Indian Territory. He was the only deputy to begin with Parker's court and work until Oklahoma statehood in 1907. Standing six feet, two inches tall and weighing 180 pounds, he became a celebrity during his lifetime in the Indian Territory. He could shoot a pistol or rifle accurately with both hands. Settlers said Reeves could whip any two men with his bare hands. Reeves became a legend during his lifetime for his ability to catch criminals under trying circumstances. He brought fugitives by the dozen into the Fort Smith Federal Jail. Reeves said the largest number of outlaws he ever caught at one time was 19 horse thieves he captured near Fort Sill, Oklahoma. The Chickasaw Enterprise on November 28, 1901, reported that Bass Reeves had arrested more than 3,000 men and women for violating federal laws in the territory. The noted female outlaw, Belle Starr, turned herself in at Fort Smith when she found out Reeves had the warrant for her arrest. In 1887, Reeves was tried for murder for the shooting of his trail cook, but he was found innocent. In 1890, Reeves arrested the outlaw Greenleaf, who had been on the run for 18 years without capture and had murdered several people. The same year, Reeves went after the famous Cherokee outlaw, Ned Christie. Reeves and his posse burned Christie's cabin, but he eluded capture. In 1893, Reeves was transferred to the East Texas Federal Court at Paris, Texas. He was stationed at Calvin in the Choctaw Nation and took his prisoners to the federal commissioner at Paul's Valley in the Chickasaw Nation. While working for the Paris court, Reeves broke up the Tom Story gang of horse thieves that operated in the Red River Valley. In 1897, Reeves was transferred to the Muscogee Federal Court in Indian Territory. Reeves remarried in 1900 to Winnie Sumter as his first wife had died in Fort Smith in 1896. The greatest testimony to his devotion to duty was the fact that he brought his own son, Benny, in for murder once he received the warrant. Benny was convicted and sent to the federal prison in Leavenworth, Kansas. In 1907, he became a city policeman for Muskogee. He died of Bright's disease on January 12, 1910. On May 26, 2012, a bronze statue depicting Reeves on a horse riding west was dedicated in Fort Smith's Pendergraft Park. The statue, which was designed by sculptor Harold T. Holden and cost more than $300,000, was paid for by donations to the Bass Reeves Legacy Initiative. We're going to end it right there with that great history of black history. We're going to end up on Bass Reed because, you know what, that sounds a little bit like somebody that we used to watch as a kid. Anybody ever heard of the Long Ranger? You know, they told me that the Bass Reed story legacy was it was uh, carpet off of the Long Ranger. Wait a minute, that was a black man running around Indian territory? That was a black man that knew how to speak? <laughs> The different Indian languages. That was a black man that had a guide that wouldn't help to Indian territory because they didn't allow white people to travel through Indian territory and and, and uh, be a law person unless they had a guide that represented the Indian territory. Wait a minute. On TV, they called him Tonto. Hey, man, that's awesome, though. Tonto. That's awesome, black history. That's awesome, man. Mm-hmm. You know, I look at, I, awesome, I, I used to watch uh, Long Ranger as a kid sometime, you know, when I was a little kid. I never thought about that was really me. 
Oh, no, man, that was me that was doing that. You know, Long Ranger was a good guy. He was kind. He was courteous. And he was above reproach. You know, that sounds like a black man. Brother Dave, what do you think about that, man? We have some great unknown black history, man, about Madeline Walker, yeah. man. Madeline Walker sounds like yeah, somebody man. that was doing her product. You know, today they call her, you know, that Johnson & Johnson product. Maybe they bought them mm-hmm. out some time ago, and, and Madeline Johnson and her, and her relatives are still getting money for that black product. You know, here we are. We're thinking about, uh, you know, stuff we see on TV. But guess what? A black woman started that some time ago. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and yeah, I, I, I used to watch history. Long Ranger, man. I used to watch Long Ranger, and I wonder, man, why would a, a white guy be riding around like that and with a mask on and nobody <laughs> never wanted to try to figure out who he was? You know, it just didn't sound real. But you know, yeah. if you look at it, Reverend Lewis, why they really did it? Because they didn't, they couldn't, they couldn't put a black man on TV. They couldn't put a black, not and doing so, all that he was doing, not doing what he was doing. Not doing all what he doing. You know, it just didn't set the stereotyping for a black man to be a good man in order to catch people and and be that that lawyer and and and, and law abiding. You know, and, he, and, he didn't and, set the stereotype. And, and, Oh, man, you know, that's pretty powerful, man. These are unsung men and women that's in black history, man. And I got thinking about, uh, you know, this brother, they call him Brian Tom. Brian Tom was a smart man. He could just emulate it. Hey, 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 Luke, brother, today you were calling Stevie Wonder. (laughs) You know you're right about that. Because Steve Wonder could hear something yeah. before he could even read it, man. Before that Braille was popular, man, he could hear it in his head mm-hmm. and make it up. You're right. He could hear it in his hey. head. He started when he was a little boy, and they made much money off of him, too. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, we always yeah. hear about people being Uncle Tom. They said he probably was so funny. He probably was scared and just didn't know any better, man. But they, people were using his yeah. talent. But guess what? What they meant for evil, God turned around for good because wherever he went, Man, people was amazed and fascinated because he was a black man. They couldn't read or write, but he could hear any sound, man. And just, yeah. you know, and you know, uh, you remember this movie, uh, uh, Police Academy, they used to have this black guy that could make any sound. <laughs> oh, yeah, you the remember Police rock, Academy, that guy, he, he just makes yeah. any kind of sound, like a siren, a love. And people say, wow. Yeah. And they had people yeah. like that in the yeah. 1800s, man, that were, that were very gifted and talented, man. And, and, and it was mm-hmm. a black man. Yeah, and, and uh, you yeah, know, and I'm thinking about, and I think about the other black brother. He sounded like, uh, remember the the brother, uh, the white guy that was real crazy. He's the father of uh, a sex, and he's the father of uh, drugs and stuff. Remember the white boy? I can't not think of his name. He was, Charles uh, Manson. Uh, no, 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 not him. He was a, a scientist. But this, then they had another brother that could just do. Uh, and you know he was uh, uh, experimenting on things. You know he was he was a scientist. Our so, uh, first. Oh, uh, you talking about the guy that 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 invented uh, the LSD? Yeah. He took yeah. LSD. And, 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 yeah, and then now uh, we had another. Leary, Leary. I think his name was Leary or something like that. Yeah, yeah I, I know who you talk about. I mean, next week I'll call his name for you, but he was yeah. a weird guy too, man. You know. 
But I was first uh, oh, artist. Well, he was he was a scientist like that too, man. He did you know a drugs experiment and sexual uh, mm-hmm. uh, experiment because he was a scientist, man. He wanted to know the meaning of life, you know. And you know, bro, that's what this yeah. show's about, brother. We you know we we know we taking the cover off of things, being free on the inside. We're Christians, but we know that we in this world and we not of this world, and it's good to know these things. Cause some young man out there wants to, uh, some young man or woman out there doing some things that they may be uncomfortable with. And guess what? God will reveal to you those true things, that those noble things, those honest things. But we need people to kind of go beyond their comfort zone, go beyond uh, the norm in a good way to make a breakthrough. We know who the next scientist uh, could be, the next cure for a dreadful disease uh, could be listening to us or be a part of a community in which we live. Amen. Brother Daniel, you know, that was a great little episode there, brother. You know, about Madam Walker, man, and hair product. You know, Madam Walker said people losing their hair. People losing their hair long, long, long ago, man. But she said, hey, she had enough insight, man, to try to to create those things. Can you imagine how difficult it was for a black person to get these chemicals and to set up a shop and to do the things that, you you know, know, how difficult it was for a person to stockpile that much money together like that and wouldn't be uh, uh, this sent around wouldn't be respected like that. You know what I'm saying? She had a lot of money, Reverend Lewis. Yes, she, she did. She was one of the richest women in the world. Yeah, and then and she was a, not only in America, but she was a, uh, she went international. International. Her product, yeah. man. Her it's product. Her product. Amen. Yeah. Amen. So that's a great little, yeah. great little unknown black history there, man. Uh, uh, I was thinking about Bass Reed, you know, right now on the internet, uh, on, on the cable, they got this show, they got this uh, program that's dedicated to the Long Ranger, and some young black man is watching the Long Ranger, little did he know that was really a black man that they named after Bass mm. Reed. A uh, uh, man. man in Texas, man, right here in Texas and Oklahoma. Right in Texas. Here's what I'm saying, somebody. Paris, Texas, uh, something else in Texas. He rode away from laws from from Oklahoma to Texas. That was his range. He just ran from one state to another. But yeah, he had in the Indian territory. Yeah, he was around. Man, he was breaking up gangs. And they said that this, this chick Belle Star, she was a notorious outlaw. She said she heard bad read after her. She turned herself in. This brother was cold, man. Oh, man. When he was on the mm-hmm. case, he probably. Mm-hmm. Probably when he got a warrant for you, he will go catch you, man. You don't want Bass Reed out there. He give up. They <laughs> turn his own son in. Yeah. You say, hey, I'd rather turn myself in to be caught by this black man, you know. That's how mm. devastating it, it was, brother. And we on the air, I'm talking about this here because I enjoy black history. I have a lot of white friends and Caucasian friends, Hispanic friends, and Ethiopian friends, but this is our mud here, black history. So if I sound a little bit excited, because I am excited about it, but you're my friend, you're always my friend, and you too, my Caucasian brother. You too can enjoy Black History along with me, because you was right there in every part of what we had done there. But yet, but yet we still uh, need to have our dues, and this here money is the time that we can lay claim to all the stuff that we've been involved in. And you know, Ricky, we still need that today. You know, we, we got an election coming up. We got a lot of things going on in society today with the shooting and the uh, economic. Uh, uh, indifferences, you know, that still need for uh, us as a as a race of people 
to step forward and kind of set things right. Who knows who will be the next person to set the society in order? And it all starts in our neighborhood and with ourselves. So, now, brother Daniel, you got something for us regarding a, a poem or anything? And uh, I and I, I received a package from one of our look. listening audience, and I am very pleased oh. to, to announce that. So, go right ahead. Hey. I know a lady, I think her name is, uh, her name is, uh, what's that lady's name? Her name is Gwendolyn Brooks. You ever heard of a lady named Gwendolyn Brooks? No, sir. She's a poet. She had a poet. She had a poem called, We, We Real Cool. We Real Cool. Let me see can I pull it up now. It's going to take a while. Okay, okay. We'll go right ahead then. And I'd just like to make mention that I received a package from one of our listening audience, Ms. Vera Squire. She's a writer, a great poet, and a visionary. So I want to thank her for her book, uh, a portrait that she constantly uh, sent out to me. And thank you very much. We'd love to have her on there sometime and read some of her poetry before the end of the month since we're dedicating uh, black hit, uh, these uh segment of program to our black history and today you've been listening to the unknown black uh history or this lost black history we pray that you enjoyed it i had a couple of uh uh shows that i really enjoyed uh, from this from what we listened to today i really enjoyed the one about blind tom how he was very gifted and talented and I wonder about Madam Walker, and I see how Madam Walker was a young lady living in difficult time, but yet she was a uh, she raised above all of uh, the negativity, and it allows me and you to know that we can be such a time as this. Yes, sir. You hear me? Yeah, I hear you. Can you Go hear right me? Okay, now this is Greenland Brooks. Brother Daniel's getting ready to play some Gremlin book books uh, audio clip here. It's coming up here, and as soon as he get that fired up, there we'll just bring that on. And you know we got a, a movie coming up here, Brother Daniel. Until you get that on the air out here, I'm going to just speak a few minutes here. We got a movie that's that's been uh, uh, that's been on uh, view. Can you hear me? Uh, no, sir. We don't hear anything. No, sir, we don't hear anything right now. You know, it's a black, the movie is called Black Panther, so if you get a chance, go out and see it. I haven't seen it yet. That's all right. Love, it's it's not on right now. I can't get it on right now. Okay. But uh, anyway, you know, she was, a, she was a black poetress, and she wrote a lot of poems. You know, like most time when you uh, when you kind of radical and real, you know, talented, some people might even call it strange. You get a chance, sometimes they ban you because you say a lot of words in your poetry and they kind of critique you or are sensitive to some of the things that you say uh, at that time period that you, you know, you're really coming up in. And a lot of poets and some musicians and some artists, they get censored because some of the things they do uh, it's not real accepted by society at the time. And 
you know, I was maybe doing some stuttering a couple of weeks ago when I first learned about how certain chords and music and was uh, considerate being of the devil and a lot of stuff wasn't accepted in music. If you wrote this music, it would claim and say you was you were, you was demonic. You know what I'm saying? So a lot of words like jazz, jazz was accepted, wasn't accepted because it was known to be, uh, you know, it had a stigmatism about it, a stigma that if you was a drug artist, you was either you was on drugs or you did something deviant, you was a sex pervert, or, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, and so that's one reason why you, you see the art form of jazz, how it, it kind of stayed on the cover for a long time. And that's so true. That's so. Hey, brother, Dave, we got a few more minutes here before we uh, uh, get off the airway. Here, we'd like to play some more of our Black History uh, uh, segment here. This okay. is our Black Inner. So sit back. We're just gonna play a few minutes of this, and then we'll come back with you shortly. Okay. Talk about Black Inventors on Free on the Inside. We're honoring Black History Month. Kick back and relax and enjoy the program. for their creativity and genius in theater, dance, music, art, and literature. But there's another kind of creative contribution African Americans have made, and that's the art of invention. From the moment you turn a doorknob, flick an on-off switch, start your engine, stop for a traffic light, take an elevator, watch a missile launch, or talk on your cellular phone, you've come into contact with an invention or innovation created by an African American. Since records of inventors' race weren't kept when the U.S. Patent Office was established in 1790, we may never know exactly how many patents were issued to African Americans. Now, probably the person most responsible for gathering information on early black inventors was Henry E. Baker, an assistant U.S. Patent Officer and graduate of Harvard Law School. Baker dedicated his life to uncovering and publicizing the contributions of black inventors. Under the auspices of the U.S. Patent Office, Baker sent out letters to lawyers throughout the country asking them to identify any black inventors they may have filed patent papers for. In 1913, patent lawyer B.J. Nolan of Chattanooga, Tennessee wrote, I never knew a nigger to even suggest an idea, much less try to patent one. And I've dealt with them niggers all my life. Baker didn't let letters like that discourage him. By the time of his death, his work produced four massive volumes and uncovered some remarkable inventions patented by black men and women. In 18th century America, one black man of inventive genius made a name for himself, a tobacco farmer named Benjamin Banneker. He resembled Benjamin Franklin in stature and was one of the country's most brilliant mathematicians. Inspired by the theories of Copernicus, Banneker became a self-taught astronomer at age 60. In 1754, at the age of 24, 
Danica made a clock entirely out of wood, which remained accurate for nearly 40 years. He was one of the surveyors in the planning of Washington, D.C., and a scientific genius. With borrowed books and instruments, Banneker taught himself the fundamentals of astronomy, keeping a journal of his calculations. Besides predicting the weather and seasons, Banneker used his almanac to extol the achievements of blacks beyond himself. When he included a poem written by the renowned poet Phyllis Wheatley, he wrote, Africans and their descendants are capable of attaining a degree of eminence in the liberal sciences. Benjamin is not the only proof. Wheatley's poem perhaps best echoed their feelings about the injustices of human bondage. Should you wonder from whence my love of freedom sprung? I young and lie by seeming cruel fate was snatched from Africa, fancy happy seat. What pains excruciating must molest, what sorrows labor in my parents' breast. Steeled was that, should and by no misery moved, that from a father sees this babe beloved. Such, such my case. And can I then but pray, others may never feel tyrannic sway. Just as Banneker loved the stars, James Fortin of Philadelphia loved the sea. One of the original abolitionist leaders, Fortin invented a device around 1800 that aided in the control of sails on ships. He amassed a fortune, built his own sail factory, and worked on the Underground Railroad helping slaves to escape. There's an African proverb that says, as the wound inflames the finger, so thought inflames the mind. And despite their circumstances, slaves created a number of inventions before the Civil War. Until they were considered citizens, however, African-American inventors were ignored, prohibited from securing patents, or slave owners took credit for their discoveries. Such was almost the case of Benjamin Montgomery of Virginia, who invented a propeller specifically designed for river steamboats. Montgomery was owned by Joseph Davis, brother of Jefferson Davis, the future president of the Confederacy. Now, when the brothers tried to patent Montgomery's propeller, Attorney General Jeremiah S. Black enacted the decision in 1858 that prohibited owners from doing so. So, as a result, any slave invention during the next 12 years went undocumented. Before the Civil War, a free black man named Norbert Rillo from New Orleans revolutionized the sugar industry in a bittersweet story. Born on a plantation and educated as an engineer in Paris, Rouleau gave the world its biggest economic sugar fix. Making sugar by the slow, dangerous kettle method inspired Rouleau to find a better way. And on August 26, 1843, he received his first patent for his sugar refining process, or the multiple effect vacuum evaporator which turned sugar juice into a fine grade of white sugar crystals. Rouleau became a wealthy and influential man in New Orleans, but was still subjected to oppressive race laws. When he was told he'd have to carry a pass to move about the city, Rouleau decided to leave America forever and return to France. France's gain was surely America's loss. Mm. Industrial growth in America was tremendous, 
and both black and white inventors were responsible. By 1870, the patent restraints for blacks had been lifted and signaled an explosion of inventions to come. One of those inventions was from Jan Metzeliger, a black immigrant from New Guinea who settled in Lynn, Massachusetts, the center of the shoemaking industry. Now, his invention revolutionized the shoe manufacturing industry and created thousands of jobs. Prior to Metzeliger's invention, connecting the leather uppers to the soles of the shoes was done by hand, a process called lasting. He wanted to make shoes affordable for everyone, and after working secretly at night for 10 years, Metzeliger created a lasting machine that could turn out a complete shoe. His drawings, however, were so complex, the U.S. Patent Office couldn't believe the machine worked. So an official was sent to inspect it. And on March 20th, 1883, Jan Metzeliger was issued his first patent. Metzeliger tried unsuccessfully to market his invention himself and sold the right invention for stock in a new company. He took to performing in plays, but died a forgotten inventor before he reaped any financial rewards. Metzeliger's recognition finally came a century later when a postage stamp commemorated his name and a bridge in his honor was dedicated in his hometown of Lynn, Massachusetts. With the introduction of Henry Ford's Model T, cars began to move horses aside and America shifted full speed ahead. Between 1871 and 1900, more than 300 patents were awarded for inventions and innovations by blacks. Inventors have become a part of American folklore as well. If you've ever heard the phrase, the real McCoy, mm -hmm, you know what I mean. The phrase was coined for a master inventor, Elijah McCoy, who ultimately patented over 60 lubricating systems, including an air brake system for railroads. In the late 1870s, most machines, including trains, had to be stopped every time they needed oil. The oilman would walk the length of the train and oil all the moving parts. McCoy devised a method for oiling machinery as it was running. And on June 23, 1872, he received a patent for the lubricating cup. McCoy believed in producing quality work. As a result, his lubricating system was used on locomotives, machinery in factories, and on engines of transatlantic steamships around the world. McCoy's system was so effective that buyers of new machinery would ask the sellers, does the equipment have the real McCoy? If it didn't, they wouldn't buy it. So if you want the genuine article, the real thing, just ask for the real McCoy. In a country that still had the feeling that the oppressed race had contributed little or nothing, African Americans began to catch the public's attention. Exhibits at the 1895 Atlanta Exposition and the 1907 Jamestown Exposition gave black inventors the opportunity to showcase their accomplishments. On the flip side, in 1896, the Supreme Court ruled in Plessy versus Ferguson that separate but equal facilities for whites and blacks was constitutional, which marked the beginning of Jim Crow laws and legalized segregation. Despite the trials and stresses of life, people enjoyed their recreational time, and hobbies were springboards for inventions. Uh, take, for instance, dentist George Grant. 
He loved playing golf. We're going to end it right there with that inventor. We're going to pull that up again next week at George Grant. They said that he invented, uh, he enjoyed golfing. And so we're getting ready to wind down this program here. So we want to thank you, thank you, thank you once again. we got Brother Daniel on the, on our, on the line here. Brother Daniel, as we, as we get ready to get on out of here, we want to be very mindful that uh, this is the day that the Lord has made. We want to be mindful this is our special edition of uh, our of, uh of a black history program here So we're going to close out with a little song here Gil Scott Here it in the floor Inside a weekly internet program to inform you and encourage you to be all you could be. Again, this show is sponsored by Granny's Place Ministry, a nonprofit ministry to meet the needs of our young men and women at risk. We have Brother Daniel on the line. He's our co-host. Thank you, Brother Daniel, for those words of encouragement. Thank you for your thoughts regarding our, our program this month. Here, so we was talking about unknown black men and women in history. We pray that you enjoyed the program here, and we got Gil Scott that's in the background here. They're singing the inner city blues. You know, Gil Scott was a great poet and a great visionary. And I ain't care you to go out and listen to some of his music and say, wow, he was right on time. As we get ready to get out of here, we have Brother Daniel on the line here. Brother Daniel, you like to say something before we get out of here? Amen. Yeah, I like to say, uh, I really enjoyed doing this program today because, uh, you know, I love music, I love art, I love invention, and I love you know, telling about the history of this, our black music. And so next week, we're going to have a little bit better show next week, and we have more insight to black history. I think we got about one more week of it, and just not left. So we'll get in a little bit more detail next week. So look forward to listening and being informed. Well, thank you very much. I'm excited about it, too. I'm looking forward to what we're going to do next week. Amen. As all goes well, we're looking forward to you lending your voice to this program as being our co-host there. Brother Dan, you've been with us for quite a while, and we want to thank you, thank you, thank you, brother, for your ideas and your opinion and your support of the program. We weren't able to answer the phone line like we want to because we want to get this here out. You know, we only have like 30 days of black history, so we try to get all we can <laughs> within the mm, short time. We can, do it, we can do it all, as often as possible, but we want to uh, be structured and loud. Uh, you know, and who knows? Who knows? What, what mind is being provoked and being challenged by what they heard today? Uh, as we get ready to close out of here, we listen to a little Gil Scott, Inner City Blues here. You know, that's still powerful right today. It, you know, the things that are going on today it make you want to holler. We got a lot of things to do today. We pray you do too. But whatever you do, do it unto the Lord 
Amen. Question to the Heavenly Father. In the name of Jesus, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you. We thank you. Dear Lord, we thank you for what we heard and what we experienced today. We pray, dear Lord, that what we did today on this airway, it makes a difference, dear Lord, from north, south, east, and west. You are God. There is no other. We thank you for Brother Daniel, how he continued to lend his voice to the program. We ask you to be with him and his family today, dear Lord. Let we do, let what we do for the Lord makes a difference, dear Lord. Let what we say makes a difference. Help change a life in Jesus' name. We know that you're no respect of person. What you've done for one, what you've done for the least of those, you do it unto all. We thank you, dear Lord. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus till we meet again. Be safe. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. You'll listen to another great episode of Free on the Inside. Until next week, be strong in the Lord. Strong in the Lord. Be free.